The Sanctuary, a community of Jesus people promoting the glory of God in all things to all nations through gospel-centered missional living. Whether it be working with groups in Africa to build orphanages and help rid the continent of AIDS, or feeding the hungry, giving to the oppressed, and helping the hurting who live in our own community, The Sanctuary invites you to be part of a culture of passionate service. You can change your world. Be inspired. Join the movement. Thank you all so much. It's really an honor and privilege to um, get to speak. I so admire our pastor, Pastor Joe, and his faithfulness to speak the Word of God, and I'm so thankful every time I've come here. You all have been such a great blessing. As Jimmy was mentioning, the College of Biblical Studies is a small Bible college at 59 in Hillcroft, um, and uh, we just offer bachelors and associates in, uh, and, uh, in English and Spanish and various classes as well as homeschool. Um, we uh, do dual credit as well from a Christian worldview. So if you have interest, feel free to come up and talk to me afterwards. We're going to be in Mark chapter 11 today. But before we get in there, I'd like to go on ahead and pray. Father, we praise you. We thank you, God. You are so worthy of all our praise. We just want to exalt you, God. I'm going to ask every one of you there in your own chairs, pray silently for yourself. If there's anything between you and God that you need to confess, I'd encourage you to do that silently now so your heart and mind will be as open as possible as to what he has to say to you today. Now I'm going to invite you to cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. Whatever burdens or things you're bringing today, I, I, I invite you there to to pray and ask Him and bring those to the feet of Jesus. Maybe in your rush today, you haven't had a chance to, to raise these concerns to Him, so I invite you to do that now. Now I'm going to ask you to pray that God will show you at least one thing that will change your life forever, that you will be forever transformed as a result of what you hear today. Now I'm going to ask you to pray for me that I'll teach in a manner that's clear, scriptural, and relevant so you can easily apply these truths to your lives. That I would not seek the approval of man but God alone in this process of teaching you today. And that I wouldn't rely on my own wisdom and abilities but on the Holy Spirit alone as I teach you. Now I'm going to ask you to pray silently that the Holy Spirit will take control of our time to illumine our minds of His truth, to convict our hearts of our sin, to help us to not just be hearers of the Word today, but doers. Pray for everyone that's struggling with some aspect of their walk that's among us today, that they find the encouragement they need in Christ. And pray if there's someone among us that does not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, that they would not leave this place without trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior. Father, we love you, we praise you, and we trust you. And we pray all, uh, pray that you will guide this and, and help me. May your spirit empower me to teach in the manner that brings you the greatest glory, but may your spirit also empower us to live this out in the manner that gives you the greatest glory. We pray for Pastor Joe and Mindy as they're attending to family, and uh, pray for Jordan and Paige that you would give them a great marriage that brings you a great deal of glory. We love you and praise you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
I don't know about you, but my family, we're not very big fans of roller coasters. So we're um, not really the adventure type of family. Um, and we went to Six Flags this past spring break. And um, up until now, even though our kids are 11 and 9, they kind of try to stay away from the roller coasters. They don't like them. We usually kind of have to bargain with them and, you know, offer them something, a game or something if they ride it. And usually we're just saying, just ride it once and you'll like it. And, and generally, my son, if we negotiate correctly and I promise to buy him something, he'll try it. And, um, and so we were at uh, Six Flags and there was one that we rode last time that he was... Um, willing to do again for the right price. And so we talked to him and said, look, we'll just do this one. And you've done it before. Don't you remember? It wasn't very bad at all. And he said, okay, okay. And so we got in line and we were waiting in line. And he said, dad, I think we're on the wrong one. And I said, no, buddy, we've done this before. And he said, I don't see any little kids on the ride. And I said, yeah, look right there. There's two little kids getting off right there. And, and he said, dad, I think this is the one with the big dip. And I said, son, it's not. Don't worry. It's going to be fine. And as we were riding and we were going up, I, on the way down, I was like, oh, shoot, this is the one with the big dip. We thought we were getting on the Roadrunner and got on the Iron Rattler instead. Um, and, you know, even that one, I don't want to ride. You know, I wouldn't even try to talk him into that one. He had been telling us on the way, he said, I wouldn't even ride that one for $10. Um, and, and, and so we were looking at it and we we're going through and it was just crazy. We're going up and down. And, and after we got off, my son's like, see, dad, I told you we were in line for the wrong one. And I said, would you do it again? He said, no way I would not do this again. No way I would not do this again. And as we enter into Holy Week, we're kind of entering into the last week of Jesus's life according to scripture. And it's a huge roller coaster. There are tons of ups and downs. And, and today from a worldly perspective, we're looking at a high of the week. From a worldly perspective, this was an exciting time. From the disciples' perspective, they're just so excited. Finally, people are realizing who Jesus is. And they're so excited because they're thinking the kingdom is coming to pass this week. In fact, just before this event, they're arguing about who's going to sit on Jesus' right or left. There's so much anticipation. There's anticipation in the crowd. There's anticipation everywhere. Yet we also see that Jesus is sad. In the midst of the highs of the week, Jesus is crying over Jerusalem. Jesus is, 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 uh, is taking the temple and, and, and throwing down the, the money and, and, and getting people out of the temple. He's cleansing the temple. He's, he's saying, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. He's, he's proclaiming. He's, he's warning. But then on Sunday, that's the real high for us as Christians because that's the day he rose when the disciples were at their lowest, when they were at the point of the roller coaster where it seems like we should have never gotten on this ride, what were we thinking? Why did we waste three weeks of our lives, three years of our lives? He ends up surprising everyone, even though he told them he was going to do it from the very beginning. And so um, I listened to a message by John MacArthur, and I thought he had a great title for this, um, but I didn't want to steal it from him, but it, call, it was called False Coronation of the True Messiah. And he talks about how from a worldly perspective, they thought they were bringing him in and they were saying, here's, here's the Messiah, we're going we're gonna, uh, we're gonna, to we're gonna make him king today. But it was a false coronation, it wasn't a true coronation because they didn't do what was necessary 
to bring about the kingdom. I want to uh, look at um, a slide I have on a, what a, a Roman triumphal entry would have looked like. Wearsby says this, We call this event the triumphal entry, but no Roman would have used that term. An official Roman triumph was indeed, was indeed something to hold. Behold, when a Roman official came back to Rome after a complete conquest of the enemy, he was welcomed home with an elaborate official parade. In the parade, he would exhibit his trophies of war, and the illustrious prisoners he had captured. The victorious general rode in the golden chariot. Priests burned incense in his honor. And the people shouted his name and praised him. The procession ended at the arena where the people were entertained by watching the captives fight with wild beasts. That was a Roman triumph. Our Lord's triumphal entry was nothing like that. But it was a triumph just the same. He was God's anointed king and savior. But his conquest would be spiritual and not military. A Roman general had to kill at least 5,000 enemy soldiers to merit a triumph, but in a few weeks the gospel would conquer some 5,000 Jews and transform their lives. Christ's triumph would be a victory of love over hatred, truth over error, and life over death. After looking into the temple area where he would return the next day, Jesus left the city and spent the night in Bethany where it was safer and quieter. No doubt he spent time in prayer with his disciples, seeking to prepare them for this difficult week that led... a difficult week that lay ahead. The Gospels cover, spend a lot of time on this one week in Jesus' life. Uh, John has 21 chapters. He starts, I believe, in chapter 11. Uh, Mark has 16. We're starting here in Mark 11. So a big chunk of, of these Gospels is dedicated to this last week that we celebrate this week. Um, and so today we're going to be talking a little bit about this concept, this, this great entry. But before that, I want to give you a little introduction to the book of Mark so you understand a little bit about what it's about. A key verse from that is Mark 10, 43-45, which says this, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark portrays Jesus Christ as the servant of the Lord, the ultimate servant of the Lord, who brings the good news of the gospel that he gives his life as a ransom for many with the express purpose of training his disciples to serve him as well as others and unashamedly proclaim his gospel to the world. Uh, Matthew portrays Jesus as Messiah and King. Mark portrays Jesus as servant. Uh, Luke portrays Jesus as the Son of God. And John emphasizes his divinity. We have four different Gospels written to four different audiences with four different purposes. And the purpose of the book of Mark is to focus on this servant. Just to give you an outline of the book, um, basically, in chapters 1 through 7, we start with Jesus' ministry as a servant of the Lord. Then in 8 through 10, he trains his disciples to be servants. And then 11 uh, 11 through 13... He's rejected as the servant of Yahweh by the nation of Israel, which is where we start today. 14 through 15, he serves all mankind. And then in 15 and 16, the greatest of all proclaimed to the nations. So we're going to be focusing on Mark 11, 1 through 10. And I want to talk to you about, first of all, the preparation for the king's entry in Mark 11, 1 through 6, and the pre- presentation for the king's exaltation in 11, 7 through 10. Let me give you a background to this passage first. Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. So there was a lot of excitement in Jerusalem about this Messiah. 
So much so that the, the religious leaders were wanting to kill not only Jesus, but Lazarus himself. Imagine, they want to literally destroy the proof. Uh, and rather than being convicted by it or transformed, they're saying, no, let's, let's kill him too because he's a sign. So he just did this amazing miracle with Lazarus uh, uh, in Bethany, and now he's coming back. But the crowds were far more interested in his miracles than his message. They saw him as this great miracle worker and perhaps a great deliverer who was going to liberate them from Rome, but they weren't that interested in his message. And I would say that that's the heart of a lot of people who come to church. They're interested in his miracles, but not willing or care, don't care much about his message. That we say, thank you, Jesus, when, when, when people win World Series or NBA Championship, or thank you, Jesus, at the Oscars, or I even have seen people quoting Jesus as a, as a reason to, have, uh, to be pro-choice or to, to endorse abortion, or, or, or Jesus wouldn't do X, Y, Z. And so we pray to him, we ask him, we beg him to help us, but how interested are we in his message, in his word? Now, what is interesting is up until now, Jesus, every time someone tried to make him Messiah or proclaiming as king, he would literally tell them, don't say anything about me. He would heal people and say, please don't mention this to anyone. We see this, um, we see this uh, first of all, in Mark 1 through 40, 144, where he healed someone and then he says, please don't tell anyone. Now, I can imagine that must have been kind of difficult. Imagine if you were blind or you were lame and then someone says, hey, what happened? Why are you no longer blind or what? <clears throat> can't say anything. Oh, come on, you can tell me. I, 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 I just can't say anything. I promised the guy. Well, you know, surely you can at least tell me. I've been your best friend this long. I'd like to know how you are no longer blind. Well, let me just say, it was this guy, Jesus. He did this. But, but he told me not to tell, so don't tell anyone. And then, you know, they're walking around in the marketplace. How did so-and-so get healed? Well, he told me not to tell anyone, but it was Jesus. Um, now, I'm certain it was probably even more obvious than that. I'm sure they were proclaiming it in the streets, this guy healed me, and, and things like that. But up until now, he's been very intentional, telling people, don't, don't reveal that I've done this, or because he knew the heart of the people, that they would want him, crown him king as a result of what he did for them and not who he was, and not what he said. But now, in Mark 11, he's presenting himself to the king as king and messiah, and this upsets the religious leaders. In fact, in Luke 19.39, they tell him, hey, tell your disciples to, to calm down. They shouldn't be, be saying this. So this is the point where he finally says, okay, it's time to call me king. It's time for me to present myself to you as king. Now, I have a kind of chart of contrasts of what's happening because there's all four gospels cover this, and I only had time, I hope I have enough time to cover one, um, and so I just wanted to create kind of a contrast to the mindset of what's happening right here. For the Jews, the crowd and the disciples don't understand its significance. Even John 12, 16 says that later his disciples didn't understand the significance of what he was doing until he rose from the dead. However, Jesus clearly understands the purpose of this event. He's presenting himself as Messiah knowing he's going to be rejected. The crowd cheers and rejoices while Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. He's literally weeping over the state of the people. He's literally weeping over the, the, the condition, the religiosity of the people. I wonder sometimes if some of the things we rejoice over, he weeps over. 
Some of the things we think, oh, I'm so glad that person got theirs, is something he actually weeps over our hearts and how we view that. The crowd thought their biggest problem was Rome and they needed physical deliverance. So from the crowd's perspective, they thought, finally, someone is going to take off these Roman shackles, take off this oppressive government. However, Jesus taught their big problem was their sin, namely their pride and their decision to use religious tradition and give him lip service without giving him their heart, and that they needed to repent first. That was the real issue that for him. The crowd prepares for Passover celebration in the temple. Jesus predicts its destruction. It's kind of funny in Matthew 23, he says, Behold, your, your house is going to be left desolate. And then the next day, the, the disciples are looking and saying, Have you seen the temple? I mean, I don't know if they were just thinking, maybe if he gets an idea of how cool this is, he won't predict the destruction. And, and Jesus reiterates again what's going to happen. They were thinking they were at the ultimate religious experience, going to the temple for Passover. It was kind of one of those uh, annual, uh, the closest equivalent would probably be like the Muslim Hajj, you know. It, it was this big, they think millions of people, possibly two million people were, were in Jerusalem at this time. It was a huge event. The crowd wants a military Messiah to set up a kingdom without repentance. Jesus comes humbly on a donkey with a message of repentance. See, the crowd thought, and the Jews thought, our biggest problem is Rome, and so if we just have the deliverer, the Messiah, come, he'll deliver us, we'll be okay. However, the first thing out of John the Baptist's mouth is repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The first thing out of Jesus' mouth is repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Both of them were preaching a message of repentance. Why? Because Deuteronomy 30 says that if you find yourself in a foreign land under foreign oppression and you've been removed from your land, that what you need to do is return to God and He will find you. See, they were worried about the condition of their life instead of the condition of their heart. In fact, I believe that that's why in the future uh, the Israelites will embrace the Antichrist because he's going to promise them a kingdom without repentance. He's going to say, hey, you worried about all those bombs going off you know, in Jerusalem? You, would you like to worship in the temple? I can remove the Don of the Rock for you. I'll, I'll get the Muslims to do it. Don't worry, I can take care of all that. And, and would you like to, to just once again be the people that, 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 that are uh, the focus of the world? And they say, yes, 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 give us that. He says, I'll make that happen. Just follow me. And they say, yes, you're our Messiah. Halfway through the tribulation, he sits on the throne, declares himself to be God. And they look and say, gosh, we thought you were a great guy, but we never thought you were God. And they reject him. And then they see his true colors as he begins to persecute him for three and a half years. And they cry out and say, if he was not the Messiah, who is? And Zechariah says, they will look upon him whom they've pierced, and they will mourn. See, they wanted a kingdom without repentance. They thought, look at us, we worship so faithfully, we come to Passover, we, we worship, we give our tithes, we give our offerings, and look at what's happened to us. Instead of looking and saying, okay, maybe this is a sign that I'm in a condition of which we as a nation need to repent. And so moving on to chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, it says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied 
on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it to me. Most people think when they think of this Passover week, they spent, think Jesus spent his whole week in Jerusalem, but it seems like he is going back and forth uh, to Bethany to possibly go back and pray, be with friends, and, and run, uh, go back to Jerusalem. It wasn't very far to go back and forth, and plus it was a pretty crowded city, but um, he seems to be going back and forth um, there. And notice it says that he went to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. This Mount of Olives has significant prophetic significance. Zechariah 14, 3 through 4 says the Mount of Olives was the place where the Messiah would stand before conquering the nations. It says in verse 3 of, of chapter 14, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand at the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, but a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. Revelation chapter 14 portrays this event. Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. He's there with the 144,000 Jews that are with him, and he is ready to come in. And to, to, to not this time, he's not coming in on a donkey, he's coming in on a white horse to be that conquering king that he was called to be. So here he is, he's on the Mount of Olives, and I'm sure the anticipation of the disciples are like, wow, this is exciting, this is it. This is what we read about, this is what we dreamed about. Yet it wasn't to be to pass because the nation wasn't ready. Their hearts had not repented yet. Constable says this, Jesus has complete control over the events leading up to his death at the hands of evil men, and he has control in our events. Even riding a colt who had never been ridden before in the middle of a frenzied Passover crowd showed his control over nature. The colt was unbroken, and Jesus was able to ride, it on, ride on it comfortably. These facts suggested that Jesus might be the sinless man who was able to fulfill the Adamic covenant mandate to subdue the animals. He was the second Adam. Jesus is using this event to show his complete control over what's going on. He has complete control. To the disciples, it looks like a roller coaster. To the disciples, it looks like a dad that got you on the wrong ride. But, but, but he is God and he knows what he's doing. So much so that he's able to ride a, a donkey that has never been ridden before in the midst of a massive frenzy. Kind of like the, the crowd when the Rangers won the World Series. Oh wait, that was the Astros, right? Um, like the, when the Astros won the World Series, that massive frenzy, people are, are jumping on cars. I can imagine riding a little donkey that's never been ridden before. The thing would get completely overwhelmed and, and scared, yet he rode it with complete authority. That shows his complete control over nature. Not only that, but the unridden colt also demonstrated his right to be king. Solomon also rode in on a mule in 1 Kings one thirty three. The Mishnah, which kind of gives us an insight to the, the Jewish traditions, says in Sanhedrin 2.5, others may not ride on the king's horse. So the fact that it was an unridden horse showed that it was, as king, only kings could ride on king's horses. Or an unridden donkey, I should say. Sit on his throne, handle a scepter, and others may not watch him while he's getting a haircut, while he is nude, or in the bathhouse. So it is written, you shall set him as king over you. That reverence for him will be upon you. 
And so the fact that he's on an unridden animal showed that, that he had complete authority to be king. It's interesting also that they're not supposed to watch him in the nude, which seems to be possibly what would have happened when he was being crucified himself. Usually, we don't know this for certain, but the normal traditions were, were in Roman crucifixions, they would have been nude. And so he's showing who he is as king. However, the unwritten cult also demonstrates Christ's humble way of fulfilling prophecy. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. A warrior might come on a horse, just as Jesus did in Revelation 19. But... Jesus coming in as king demonstrated he was a peaceful ruler king, and we see examples of that in Judges 10.4 and 12.14. Not only that, but at this point, he is also fulfilling the 69th week of Daniel. Daniel 9.24 through 27 basically tracks um, the 69, and well, it's really 70 weeks, but the first 69 weeks, um, Tom Constable and others have basically been able to show that the very week of the triumphal entry, Dr. Harold Honer has a book, Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. He's able to calculate it to the very day that that fulfilled this 69 weeks. That In Daniel, he, he prophesied 69 weeks as part of the process of, of bringing the people to repentance, which ended up being 483 years <clears throat> And at this moment, Jesus is literally coming in to fulfill that prophecy. Yet there's a 70th week that still remains. And I believe that's that final week in the tribulation that right now uh, we're in the church age, but that week I talked about, those seven years still await us in the future. So we talked a little bit, um, we'll continue to talk a little bit about the preparation for the king's entry. Look at verse 3. It says, if anyone says to you, what, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. So imagine these two disciples, they're going to pick up an unridden um, donkey, and, and, you know, the people might say, well, you know, hey, what are you doing untying this? And he says, just tell them that the Lord has need of it. I heard an illustration of a, a pastor who literally preached a sermon on verse 3 of Revelation 11. And it was a little girl who died, and he said, God, what if God has need of that one thing that you're clinging to so much? Are we willing to let it go? It's interesting, in agrarian society, wealth was usually measured in terms of cattle. It wasn't in terms of money, it was cattle. So this would be the equivalent of someone coming to someone's house and, and just basically pulling up the keys and trying to ride off in their Porsche or their Corvette. What, what will God ask of you? What is it if God says, I have need of this? I have need of your house for a bunch of teenagers to wreck on Truth Weekend. I, I, have, need of your, I have need of your car. I have need of, are, are, are we like this person? Are we willing to say, okay, the Lord needs it. He can have it. Are we more likely to cling and say, no, 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 I don't want to mess up my house. I, I don't want to mess up my car. I don't want to do this. I, I have greater need of it than the Lord has. Verses 4 through 6, And they went away and found a colt tied at a door in, uh, in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying this colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. 
doesn't even really seem that they even asked for it. <laughs> Can you imagine these disciples are coming and they're just kind of untying this colt? I mean, I imagine that the owners are kind of like, yo, ho, where are the, where are the police officers? You know, I mean, and, and, and then they say, well, the Lord has need of it. This declaration invokes a custom known as Angaria, in which a person of significance, usually an officer of the Roman government, could take possession of someone else's property or require them to perform a task. Since Jesus is such a respected figure, this remark was sufficient for the disciples to secure the animal. So there was a cultural reason why they would do this. And even though he said that he would, they would bring it back, they have no guarantee of it. But because he needed it, God in his sovereign events chose the right owner that was willing to release this for his purposes. Verses 7 through 8, it says, And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat, and many spread their cloaks on the road. Throwing clothes on the floor is comparable to 2 Kings 9.13, which says, Each of them quickly took off his cloak, and they spread them out at Jehu's feet on the steps. The trumpet was blown, and they shouted, Jehu is king. Imagine the excitement of this crowd. They're so excited. They're, they're throwing their cloaks in the road. Now, the average Jew only had one cloak. This isn't like one of many. This isn't like, you know, we have a, 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 you know, we have a closet full of jackets, some of which we just recently started pulling out again. We think, you know, winter's over, and then all of a sudden, you know, you get, get cold. But they, they, had, they had one, and, and they're putting it out, and it's literally almost like saying, you are above us. You can, you can step on our jackets, our coats. We don't care. You are above us. You are our king. You would think that that would show some level of faith, but we know that for many of them, they deserted Jesus later. That the Jews themselves still, despite being willing to give up their clothes and, and to praise him, were not willing to bring about a heart of repentance. And it says, And others... In verse 8, it says, And others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Uh, Palm branches were a symbol of victory, of worship, of salvation, and deliverance. We see palm branches in Revelation 7, 9 through 10, where these people are have palm branches and they're proclaiming the salvation of Jesus in heaven. And so uh, it's, it's it's a symbol of salvation, deliverance, but it is also a symbol of victory. Second Esdras says in 242, 44-45, this is not an inspired book, this is an apocryphal book, but it does give us some background understanding. So some of these books that are in, say, Roman Catholic and Orthodox versions of the Bible are not inspired, <clears throat> but they do give us some background information, which is sometimes helpful for understanding the culture. It says, I, Ezra, saw an enormous crowd on Mount Zion, too many to count. They were singing and praising the Lord. And I asked the angel, who are these people, sir? He replied, these are people who have taken off their mortal robes and have put on immortals. They have confessed their faith in God, and now they are, bringing, uh, they are being given crowns and palm branches as symbols of victory. So this palm branch was a symbol of, we're going to win, we're going to win. This is our symbol of victory. And I'm sure the disciples were just on a high. They're in this moment. They're like, finally, 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 it's coming. These years we've invested. Matthew's probably thinking, I'm so glad I left that money on that tax collector thing that day. And Peter's like, I'm so glad I gave up fishing. It's finally here. Victory is here. 
Yet we know that probably in their minds on Friday, there was going to be the greatest defeat, the greatest letdown they ever experienced. But God raised on Sunday. That they're still in this roller coaster of an event. There, there still is this hope. And that is the truth for all of us. Sometimes we are scared to get our hopes up. Sometimes we wonder, is this all true? Is this all going to happen? But we can rejoice because victory is still ahead of us. Second Ezra 2, 43, 46 through 47 says, standing in the middle of the crowd was a very tall young man, taller than any of the others. He was placing a crown on the head of each person, but he towered above them all. I was spellbound by the sight. Then I asked the angel, who is the young man who is putting the crowns on their head and giving them palms? He is the son of God, the angel replied. And all these people confessed their faith in him while they lived on earth. Then I began to praise those who had stood for the Lord so bravely. So this is a picture of the the victory of the anticipated Messiah. Now here's one thing I would say. Um, I came out of the Catholic Church. I was um, saved my uh, senior year in college, had grown up Catholic. And I remember as a kid kind of carrying around the palms. We would would celebrate Palm Sunday and we would um, sometimes walk around the church um, and we would carry our palms. They handed out palms and probably my earliest years of of, of moving to Protestantism, I kind of detested everything that had happened in my past. I just, the whole idea of Lent, you know, I used to tell my family, I'd say, what are you giving up for Lent? I would say Lent. And, um, and you know, um, and I just thought, you know, I, there's just no point in all this. But the, the longer I go, the, the more value I see in things like a, a preparation for this day. I, the, the more I see value in a Good Friday, which I think we're going to to, to worship here, um, and the more I see value in, in remembering this Palm Sunday. And so there is value, there's intrinsic value in remembering this week because it is a very important week. However, I would also say that we have to avoid the mistake of some of the Jewish people to honor the traditions that point to the Messiah while rejecting the Savior they're supposed to point to. I know I would go uh, every, every year on that Palm Sunday, I'd bring my palm branches and then the next Monday through Saturday, do whatever I wanted, and I didn't care. And in the same way, we have to be cautious because these Jewish people were all there. They're, they're all lifting up their palms, but they ultimately did not worship the man that they were singing these praises to. Jesus healed the blind man just prior to this event in Matthew twenty-one thirty-four, symbolizing the blindness of the nation. Immediately afterwards, he cleansed the temple and cursed the fig tree. All of these are symbols of the state of the nation of Israel. <clears throat> he said, you're blind. You're, you're a tree that's not producing fruit. Your temple, you, you've, you've turned this into a marketplace. You're, you're turning all of this into a means of making money instead of worshiping me. And so all of these things he spoke out against. And once again, I, I wonder sometimes if in all of our attempts to get political power and political influence and, and cleanse the worlds of all these wrongs, I wonder sometimes if his real concern of his real weeping is over the state of the church. Yes, he's concerned about the state of the nation. Yes, he's concerned about all the things that are happening. But I, I, and I'm sure in the Jewish mind, they're thinking, well, we're not as bad as the Romans. Look at all the awful stuff they're doing. Yet he's not weeping over the Romans. He's weeping over his people. He's weeping over the Jews. And he's saying, if only you knew what I was offering you. I was offering you something better than deliverance from the Romans. I was offering you deliverance from your sin. But you were not humble enough 
to do this. And that's why I'm riding on a donkey to be a model to you of what that looks like. And those who went before him and those who followed shouting, Hosanna, Mark eleven nine. 9. This word Hosanna is the transliteration of a Greek word that... Um, Hosiana, which means, oh, save us now. It's an exclamation of praise. They're literally crying out, oh, save us now. This Easter, are we only wanting God's blessings without his salvation? Are we just saying, oh, save us now. Oh, save me now from the financial problems I'm in. Oh, save me now from this marriage. Oh, save my family. Oh, save me from my work. Oh, save me. Or are we literally saying, God, We truly want you this Easter. We want you in the midst of all this. And verse 9 says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a continued quotation of Matthew 8, um, I'm sorry, Psalm 118. And it's a verse that was commonly quoted this time of year. This was often something that they would have been proclaiming at a Passover. That's why the Romans aren't very worried. This would have been a common scene is to be speaking in it. But the interesting thing is they had no idea that at the moment they're quoting this, that it's literally being fulfilled. The psalm itself says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Yes, he is blessed. Yes, he can save. But are we willing to accept the conditions of his salvation? Are we willing to acknowledge that we're sinners and we cannot save ourselves? That Jesus died on a cross on Friday for that sin and rose again on Sunday? And have we trusted in him for eternal life? And for those of you that are believers that have just tuned me out for the last thing I said, are we willing to to even apply that gospel to our daily sanctification? Say, God, I mess up. I mess up all the time. But you died for that mess. You died on a cross for that mess. And you rose again to show your victory over it. And by faith, I'm trusting you to resolve these areas of my life that don't bring you glory. Constable says, this was a common greeting for visitors to Jerusalem. However, on this occasion, it took new meaning. Genesis 49.10. The people's reference to the coming Davidic kingdom showed that they hoped for its establishment soon. Some in the crowd acknowledge Jesus as the son of David. Genesis 49.10 actually talks about this Judah, this lion's whelp, and it actually talks about a, a, a tied animal, and, and it looks like it's, it's kind of a, a, pict, a, a prefiguring of, of Jesus himself. 11.10 says this, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. By acknowledging Jesus as the son of David, the crowd is anticipating that Jesus is the fulfillment of the son of David who is prophesied as Messiah in 2 Samuel 7:14 The crowd thought that the kingdom was here but they it wasn't because they hadn't met the necessary pre, uh, preconditions of repentance One thing I do want to point out it says uh, Wearsby says this you sometimes hear that it said that the same people who cried hosanna on Palm Sunday ended up crying crucify him on Good Friday but that is not true the crowd that wanted him crucified came from predominantly Judea and Jerusalem whereas the Galilean Jews were sympathetic with Jesus in their ministry. And so these are probably people that have been following him for quite some time. And like the disciples, they're excited. However, I do want to point this out. The Jewish nation expected for the Messiah to physically overtake the Romans. When Jesus didn't do what they wanted, they urged for his crucifixion. I love this quote. R.C. Sproul had a message on this. He says, one way to upset someone is to create expectations and not meet them. Some of us might have had expectations of marriage is going to be like this, and then when they weren't met, 
we get angry or we get hurt or you had expectations of a church or you had expectations of, of what a friend would do for you or you had expectations of your kids or expectations. The real issue for the Jewish people is they expected a kingdom without repentance. And when Jesus didn't meet that, they come back in fury and literally cry out for his crucifixion. Let me ask you this. If you're angry at God, is it possible that there is some unmet expectation that you are holding against him? What expectation do we have of God? What, what thing is in our mind and heart, and when it wasn't met, our faith was dashed, or, 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 or we're no longer able to worship him or follow him in the same way? I'd like to call our worship um, team up as we um, prepare for the closing, um, but... Uh, in anticipation of that, um, we had some key points today. We talked about the preparation for the king's entry and the presentation for the king, uh, king's exaltation. Um, and I'd like to, um, first of all, acknowledge our worship team. Um, I heard this song. Um, I was invited to something at KSBJ, and it was uh, uh, listening to a band called I Am They. And as a professor, I'm like, that's not even grammatically right. I mean, why would you name your name I Am They? Um, but what they're saying is it's actually cued off of John chapter 17 where Jesus is praying for his disciples, the they, and they're saying, I am they, I'm one of them, you know. Um, and, and they play this song, and I don't know how many of you have heard it, but it was called, a song called Scars. And I was just blown away the first time that I heard this song. I mean, I, I came there with no expectation. I didn't even really know who they are. It was just a live thing, and they were playing, and, and I was like, oh, that's cool. I'll get to hear a new band. And this song um, for this Easter has become something that has ministered my heart. I want to commend our worship team, because I sent them a video. And I said, can you just play this video? And they said, do you mind if we sing it? And I thought, man, that's awesome. In less than a week, they're willing to prepare a new song and do this for us. But the reason that I wanted them to play this song is in that danger of unmet expectations, the way that we fight that is to thank him for those unmet expectations. To thank him for the scars. To thank him because without them, I would not know who he is. To thank him for the marital challenges, to thank him for the illnesses, to, to thank him for the family issues, to thank him for all of these things. And so what I'm going to do is, uh, in closing, the lyrics are going to be up on the screen. I'm going to invite our worship team just to uh, sing this. And I'm just going to, once again, call some of our prayer uh, ministers up and um, just ask if you, if you just want to pray over something. If there's an unmet expectation, it could be a marital issue, it could be a personal issue, it could be just something else. This Easter, may we lay it on the cross, that cross that he, he bore on Good Friday. And thank him. May he rise again over that area of unmet expectation.